Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. B Hello and welcome to the Whale Hunting Podcast, where we shine a light onto the hidden worlds of money and power every week. This week it's me by myself, Bradley Hope. Tom will be back. I'm one of the founders of Project Brazen. We started whale hunting as a newsletter, which you can still find at whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. But we were having such a good time that we decided to create a podcast. And this week I think you're going to enjoy very much our guest, Alex Finley, it's a, it's a pen name, it's not her real name. Um, she's a former CIA officer and a writer and a novelist, an expert on Russian intelligence and influence, disinformation, counterterrorism. She regularly has written for the Whale Hunting Newsletter, where she had a column called Yacht Watch. She also writes her own newsletter on Substack, and you'll find her writing in places like Politico, Slate, the Center for Public Integrity. So it, there's a lot for us to discuss and share and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Alex. Welcome to Whale Hunting. Can you give us a little bit of a bio on yourself about how you ended up in your career, how you started off, and how you ended up where you are now in Spain? Sure. Uh, I actually started as a journalist uh, like you, and then I went into the intelligence community. I worked at the CIA in operations for a number of years. Once I left there, I started writing. I've written three novels, uh, all satires of the CIA. And doing a lot of the research for those novels also led me into uh, some interesting worlds where I was able to start freelancing as well and start writing a number of other uh, freelance articles. I particularly got into writing about the Russia investigation in the United States, which helped lead to my third novel, uh, Victor in Trouble. And that then led also into... Uh, yachts, which I think we're going to talk about here pretty soon. So just kind of going back a little bit. So when you started off in journalism, that was like a degree that you did? Yeah, I got a uh, my master's degree in uh, in journalism from Columbia. And then I worked at a number of different newspapers back, back in the day. We had actual newspapers. And um, yeah, that was where I got my start. And what kind of uh, journalism were you, were you doing? Like what kind of things were you writing about? Uh, mostly political. I worked on Capitol Hill for a number of years. Um, I did some business writing as well. Um, but it was a pretty short stint before I went and uh, joined the agency. And and how did that come about? Did you just have a desire to try something different? Like what was your thinking at the time when you made that kind of change? I knew somebody who was working there who um, he sort of recruited me. He He sat me down and said, look, you have a good background. And I think you would be good at this. And so he sort of uh, brought me in and I said, oh, well, heck, why not? I'll give it a try. And did you have like some of the other kind of known qualities? Like, are you good at languages and things like that, too? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I have, um, I had done the journalism degree, but I also have a master's degree in international relations and economics. And so a lot of my background was international. I speak other languages. I had sort of the right profile um, for the type of person they were looking for. Yeah. I would imagine that they would be a little bit nervous that you that you had started off on a journalism career, you know, which is kind of so different in in, in some ways in, in terms of what you talk about, how you talk about yourself and that kind of thing. Was there ever a kind of moment where they they weren't so sure that it was a good idea to hire a journalist? No, never, actually. And I think that's one of the misperceptions, actually. There is a lot that I would argue journalists and intelligence officers have in common, particularly investigative journalists. Um, it's just that your audience is very different, <laughs> um, but it's the same type of thing. You have to recruit sources. You have to get them to tell you things they probably shouldn't be telling you, and you have to protect those sources. You have to be very careful about how you get the information, how you handle the information. Uh, it's just that journalists then go and publish it publicly for everybody to see, whereas uh, in the intelligence community, we have a much narrower audience. And I guess maybe you can't write with as much style in those reports as well, right? That's true. I, you would be surprised, actually. There, you sometimes have competitions trying to push to see who, uh, who can capture the ambiance of certain meetings the best within a cable. <laughs> That's amazing. And can you say what part of the world you were working in? Or can you say much more about what you were doing? Uh, not too much more. I can say I was in West Africa uh, and I was in Europe. And like most of the people in the years that I was there, I did a lot of work on counterterrorism. And what year was it that you left the CIA? I left in 2009. And now just kind of going into your other, one of the other areas that you've just become kind of an expert on, yachts and super yachts and oligarchs and tycoons. How did that come about? Did it start in your CIA career and continue into your post-espionage career? No, I actually uh, wasn't like a Russia expert or something like that at the agency. After I left the agency, like I said, I started writing and uh, that led to some freelance work. And so I was hired by the Center for Public Integrity to cover Robert Mueller's investigation into the um, Russian interference in the U.S. elections back in 2016. And in doing so, I learned a lot more about um, how Russian intelligence works, how Russian influence operations work. And that all then led to me writing that my third book, as I said, Victor in Trouble. And so I was doing a lot of research for that. And I started learning a lot about the role of Russian oligarchs. So I said, okay, well, my book has to have an oligarch in it then, of course. And so as I did more research on that, I said, well, gosh, if you're going to have a, an oligarch, he has to have a yacht because they all have yachts. So then I started researching the yachts. And then, as you mentioned, I live in Spain. I, I actually live in Barcelona and I can walk down to the port. And uh, before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there were a lot of Russian yachts down there. So when the invasion happened, I was very familiar with these yachts. And so that's it. I... Um, just because I had done research on Russian influence operations, that all led me into figuring out how all these yacht things work. There's something about yachts that really captures the public's imagination, and it creates this kind of mystique around people, you know, these powerful people, whether they're government or they're just kind of billionaires. I don't know, do, do you have some, under, some explanation for why people are so 
taken with yachts in particular. It seems like it's almost, it, it does an even better job of it than a, than a private jet or something. I think you're right. And I think it's because they're just so visual, uh, it, the, the visual aesthetic of it. A private plane, they all kind of look the same. Even a private residence, a villa in the south of France, you might get you know an overhead view from a drone or something like that, but you can't necessarily get inside it and see it. Uh, but the yachts are just sheer ostentatious, just everything, you know, the personal submarines and all kinds of toys. They're just so over the top that I think they really captured the public's imagination. And to me, they're just such a perfect symbol of all of this corruption that we've been discussing. It's just a very easy thing to focus on that sort of symbolizes all that's rotten here. You know, the other thing that was interesting, we were we were looking at the news about how there's these two new yachts, supposedly the ninth and tenth yachts of Putin. Like, what what could someone like Putin do with ten yachts <laughs> rather than, you know, one or two? I think I, I mean two is as far as I would go personally. But um, <laughs> do you have any any ideas about that? Well, there's definitely um, a measuring contest, yes, that goes on among Putin and the uh, the oligarchs. I mean, Abramovich also has an enormous fleet, possibly also. 10 or more yachts before the war, at least. There was a certain amount of enjoying them and, and actually enjoying the luxury of it. But a lot of it also is just to say, I can, right? I mean, that's part of the wonderful thing about being corrupt and, and immune to any kind of accountability. I can. I can do this. I can rob my country blind. I can use all my state resources for myself, and nobody can do anything about it. So I think there is a touch of uh, impunity that goes with it, which is probably pretty empowering. One of the most interesting things though, that I've found with the yachts before the war started is you know, they're in the West. So, so you have these oligarchs who are robbing Russia blind, helping Putin in his destabilization activities to destabilize the West and our democracies. But at the same time, when it comes time to park their money and to dock their boat and to spend their vacations and to send their children to school, they want to do it in precisely those locations in the West. I, I would be curious, you know, in the case of these two Putin yachts, these were good examples of the complex ways that these things are owned. Yeah, there really is a, a concerted effort among these oligarchs and Putin to hide who the true owners are. None of the yachts that we've seen, none of them are owned by an individual. They're all owned by companies, which in turn are owned by trusts, which in turn are owned by holding companies, et cetera, et cetera, um, specifically to, to make it difficult to, to figure out who the actual owner is. The boats with Putin uh, that the Dossier Center just uncovered are not owned by Putin. Nothing is actually owned by Putin. He makes about $120,000 a year officially as a humble civil servant, uh, serving only the motherland, of course. But the way that we've seen it work with a number of these oligarchs is that they pitch in. From the days of Boris Yeltsin, the oligarchs were, were pitching in to finance yachts for him. Now, the ones that we've been connecting back to Putin, some of the other patterns that we see emerging have dealt with uh, crew. Uh, Navalny's group has got a list of crew members from the Scheherazade, which is a very, very large yacht, probably worth around 700 million euros, that the Italian government has detained. 
that crew list had a number of people who are known to be in the Secret Service for Putin, the Federal Protective Service for Putin, but they're listed as crew members for the yacht. Some of those same people, if I understand correctly, have also been listed now on these new yachts that were uh, recently uncovered by the Dossier Center. So it's those types of patterns that we start putting together. But the sort of strange thing that's happened is obviously European governments went crazy seizing these yachts, but it sort of hasn't worked out the way everyone hoped, right? Yeah, there, there was this sort of glee at the beginning, right? The sanctions came down, we were watching these boats fleeing, but then a number of governments managed to actually detain some of them. Um, but then they, they weren't quite sure then what to do with it. So the problem with these boats is they're huge, they are highly technological, and everything requires daily maintenance, which on something like that is incredibly expensive. And there's a few reasons you have to maintain it. One, the law says if you freeze an asset, it has to be maintained at the level that you detained it at, but also just for security and safety. So these boats are sitting in these ports or in these shipyards. You don't want them to leak. You don't want an electrical fire, right? That type of stuff is then going to cause a problem across the shipyard. It could uh, send an entire port up in flames. You can't have the boat sink. It's an environmental hazard. So there really is a lot of maintenance that has to happen. And so these governments have found themselves with these boats, but now somebody has to pay the maintenance for them. The general rule of thumb is that annual maintenance on a boat is about 10% of the cost of the boat. So these oligarch boats that we're looking at, you know, we're talking on the low end, $100 million, and on the higher end, eight or even $900 million. So if you're doing 10% of that, you know, you're looking at a lot of money per year, you know, $50 million per year that you're putting into to maintaining these. So we've seen examples of boats that have been captured or detained. And these governments are now stuck with these enormous bills where they're just paying out the nose to, to keep them safe and secure for everybody around them. The, the other issue is you can't just sell them off, right? That was part of the other glee after we sort of detained these boats. Everybody was saying, okay, sell them off and now give them money to Ukraine. There's a few problems with that. First of all, even if you could sell it off, there's a very uh, limited market. There's just not that many people out there who have the, the money, uh, the resources, or the desire to buy something quite that large. And second, those who do have the resources to do that don't necessarily want to buy the yacht of a pissed off oligarch. So there's a few problems there. But then the other side of that is these oligarchs are stealing money in the, uh, from Russia and they're storing it in the West. Well, part of the reason that they're doing this is because we have rule of law. So there's now you know, people saying, well, just sell off the yacht and give the money to Ukraine. Well, the problem is you can't. Governments in the West and in democratic societies cannot just seize your assets and sell it off. There has to be proof through a judicial process that, in fact, you are the owner, that this uh, asset you know, is a result of a crime. And only after we go through that actual judicial process and prove that this asset needs to be forfeited, then can we sell it off. And these things take time. And we don't know yet if it's going to work. There's a case going on in Antigua with the yacht Alfanero. They have had a lot of trouble so far. Uh, they tried to auction it off and they have not been able to yet because they're, they're still stuck in the court system. 
And it's just simply not an easy thing to do. Is the reason that they're in so much kind of difficulty right now, the governments that have done the seizing, is it because they didn't really have a plan that they were almost emotionally trying to do something to put pressure on the oligarchs, for example? What do you think was the thinking going on? I think that's part of it. You know, definitely, look, sanction the oligarchs. This was had been in, in discussion for a long time before it actually happened. Okay, great. Let's seize their assets and freeze their assets. But this is sort of the first time that we're doing it where, you know, the asset is a moving, you know, living thing like uh, like a yacht. It's not like freezing the bank account of Iran, right? Which is kind of simple. Okay. You know, we we froze bank accounts of Iran and they just sort of have been sitting there for 40 years. So I, I'm not sure that there was an understanding of exactly what was going to be involved in this. Uh, I, I'm still not convinced it's the wrong decision. It would be too bad to allow these guys to still be making money off of these assets. But how to manage it at this point is not so easy. Now, Italy has run into an issue. They, As I said earlier, they have the Shahrazad, which is one of the yachts that's been linked to Putin, and they've detained it. They're actually allowing somebody else to pay for it. So there's all kinds of maintenance going on on that yacht, and they say we're, we're allowing the owner to pay for it. Now, that's not Putin himself. That's probably some offshore company somewhere that's paying it. Is that good or is that bad? Well, I, listen, the Italian taxpayer doesn't have to pay for it, which is probably pretty good. The money is going to an Italian company, which is probably pretty good. But some of that money also probably is coming out and being laundered off to you know, third, fourth, and fifth shell companies that are claiming to do a certain amount of the maintenance. And now now you have cleaned money in the West that you know shouldn't be there. So it's very difficult to figure out how it should be. Yeah, sometimes it just feels like the way that the global financial system works, the way that these, the tradition of obfuscating who owns what through this series of companies and trusts, it just makes it so hard to use the judicial process. You know, just as an example with 1MDB, that's just still going on. And, and it was actually relatively simple compared to some of these yachts, you know. All of the financial white crime investigators in all these countries, there are very few of them are actually equipped to handle this. And it, and it requires a lot of cooperation across many jurisdictions, which some of them are not as cooperative as others, you know. And I think it's just, the truth is, it's actually a lot easier to be an oligarch than it is to be the guy in the FBI trying to track this stuff down. I think you're absolutely right. And quite frankly, the, the oligarch might have more resources to be hiding everything from you than you as the FBI guy has uh, trying to actually figure everything out because you're also fighting your own bureaucracy to make sure that you can do everything you need to do within the rules that you need to be doing it. But it feels, it feels also like perhaps politicians would say we already have a win because we, we managed to really shut the oligarchs out of our countries you know, they, they were spending all their time here. They were spending all their money here, enjoying living here. And now they don't have that experience anymore. But but they have seemed to find new safe havens. Where, where do we find a lot of the yachts in the world now that might be connected to oligarchs? What, what are the kind of hotspots? I would say the two biggest hotspots are uh, the United Arab Emirates. And even bigger than that is Turkey. So most of the yachts, when we saw them flee, the ones who that have popped up again, because some still just haven't pinged or been located, uh, but most of them are in Turkey. 
And is there any idea why Turkey is so accepting of this? I mean, I guess it's just good business to let those people set up there. I mean, that's definitely the case in the UAE. Dubai is is booming because of of this kind of thing. I mean, it's always booming because of problems elsewhere, to be honest. That's it. I I think it's interesting what Erdogan is trying to do. What's so interesting to me with Turkey, as opposed to UAE, is that Turkey is a NATO member. And so, you know, when you look at what Putin has said about the Ukraine war, he complains about the expansion of NATO and Ukraine's desire to join NATO. But apparently... Turkey is an okay member of NATO for him. He's fine with it because you know, a few of his yachts are there now and a number of the oligarchs are there. And Turkey has had a very different relationship with Russia than Europe or the United States has. Uh, but again, what's so interesting is just that they, you know, they're a NATO member and that the rest of NATO isn't putting too much pressure on them, it seems. Uh, but maybe because we're getting something else out of it and Erdogan is uh, giving us something else. I'm not sure exactly what's at play there. Are you going to be continuing your fiction writing? Do you have another book in the works now? I do have another book in the works. Uh, It is not a Victor Caro book. It's a different one, although it's still CIA and hopefully still funny. But I I need to find a little time to sit down and focus a little bit more on it. Maybe it's a cliche within the CIA, but a lot of former CIA officers write kind of more thriller type of books about their experience. You've kind of added humor to the equation. I mean, what, what were some of the inspirations? Like, are, are there some influences that led you on that path? To, to me, I agree with you. A lot of the a lot of books that we see come out of people who've been in the CA are these sort of thrillers. It's also what we see a lot in the films. And I was actually kind of annoyed by that <laughs> because it's not like that. And it's sort of a disservice, I think, to our officers, because now we have this public perception that we are James Bond or we are Jason Bourne. And it's just nothing could be further from the truth, although I'll let people think that when it's in my favor. But uh, generally speaking, you know, we're, you know, normal people. There's a lot of desk work involved. There's a lot of bureaucracy involved. And it's not always um, super cool out there guns pulled and blowing things up or anything, right? You never see James Bond file an expense report for a car that he totaled. So, you know, there's there's real life being, you know, a government bureaucrat. And I happened to join the agency at a very strange time. Uh, it was very early on in the, the war on terror. I joined in early 2003. So we were just 18 months out of 9-11, and we were just before the invasion of Iraq, which was a totally crazy time to be in there because everything was changing. And so, yeah, when I got out and I wanted to start writing my book, the first one was Victor in the Rubble, which grew out of my experience playing a very, very small minor role, uh, but with an incredible front row seat to the war on terror. And just the absurdity of that entire experience, the absurdity of the war, the absurdity of how it was being carried out and how the policies just didn't make any sense. And that was it. That first book uh, became a catharsis just to sort of deal with some of the stresses that I had gone through uh, myself. And then it it turns out that it worked out pretty well. So um, people really, really liked it. And so then I said, oh, I guess I can do another one. And uh, so then I did Victor in the Jungle. And that one um, was just much more fun to write. I had sort of already dealt and processed with my a lot of the trauma I had had from my time at the agency. And so I was able to focus on the fun and the adventure because it is fun. I mean, I did things I never would have done in any other job, 
even though it's not James Bond or Jason Bourne, there was a lot of strange things that, you know, you get to do, which, you know, Bradley, you know, as an investigative journalist, you guys have these things too. You, you, know, you end up in very strange situations with strange people that most people wouldn't believe, but it's fascinating. They make great stories. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, we have, uh, Tom and I did a previous episode of whale hunting about John le Carre. There's a, you know, there's a new uh, documentary about him. There's a new book about him that talks about the hidden side of John le Carre. And it just really strikes me how fictional espionage is, you know, what what the public knows as espionage. There's just so very little of it that resembles the truth. And in his case, he really was making it all up. He, he didn't really have much of a career as a spy. And, and it looks like a lot of what he was his fuel was having extramarital affairs and then kind of using that as inspiration more so than his actual espionage career, you know. And that's it. I, I think also, especially in pop culture, you know, we, we look at Mission Impossible and all of these and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's a documentary. Like, no, okay. It's, listen, if the gun comes out, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. Most of intelligence is very subtle. There's no weapons involved. It's simply elicitation and manipulation of people, but it's very subtle. And it's just playing social games, really. Well, what do you mean by social games? Um, I mean, this sounds fascinating, the way, the way you're describing it. Well, it's a lot of figuring out who's who and what motivates them and how to motivate them to maybe come and work on your side a little bit. And psychologically, what drives them, what makes them tick, but do they have access to certain things? What are their vulnerabilities? How can I play with this? Or who do I need to introduce to them to help bring them over to my side? Yeah, I think it sounds a lot like journalism, except I, I think possibly journalism, you just have a lot more limits on what you can do. There, in you can't just you walk up with sacks of cash and say, here, talk to me. No. Here's $1,000 <laughs> today and I'll give you another 1000 tomorrow. Yeah, and you can't really speak about manipulating people in journalism. It's, it's not to be... Uh, it is not know, ethical. Not to correct. be done. However... I think it is kind of the truth about journalism. There is a kind of manipulative quality, but it's, it's that it, maybe in a way with an intelligence and journalism is there's both a kind of sense of mission that justifies the methodology. Like the, the methods of journalism aren't to be used on your everyday life, you know, just the same way I'm sure for espionage. Um, but the mission gives it some credibility what you're doing, you know? Absolutely. And, and it's true, okay, manipulation is the wrong word to use for a journalist, absolutely. But when you're talking to your sources and you're trying to convince somebody to give you information they might not want to give you, or they probably want to give you, but they know they shouldn't be giving you, you do have to talk to them and explain, right? You're, you're giving them the motivation to do so, explaining what's the bigger picture here? How is this going to serve the, the greater good? right? In intelligence circles, we talk about the acronym MICE, which is um, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. Those tend to be the four motivations or vulnerabilities that we use um, when we're assessing how to get a source to trust us or to do something. And at least, you know, within the U.S. intelligence community, things like um, money and coercion aren't always that great. Money, just because then they're just mercenaries, they'll go to anybody and coercion never, because then they're just angry and they'll just tell you, they're just telling you what, what you want to hear. Ideology has always, for the Americans at least, has always been a great one because we really had a great value system that we were selling. And I think journalists can do the same. If you're trying to get 
you know, the scientist inside a tobacco firm to hand over the goods, um, the, you know, the idea of this is for the greater good, right? That's the type of thing that you're, you're selling them to get them to give you the information. But yeah, I think I, the one parallel that I can really sense from my own career is the moment you're trying to reach out to somebody as a journalist and, and they're, there's a good chance that they're just going to tell their boss that you reached out to them. But, but the crafting of that initial uh, approach, whether it's a LinkedIn message or a WhatsApp message or whatever, or, call, or just a call, it really is very similar to what you're describing where you're trying to understand what's the likely reason this person would help me. And, and one version is this person might feel like a sense of duty, you know, like it's the right thing to do. Or somebody might actually be a bit more superficial and they actually, they've, they, they seem to have been passed over many times for promotions. And maybe they're just bitter about the state of things at their company and they don't like their boss or whatever. And so there's a lot of that thinking that goes into a, a nicely strategic approach in journalism too. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the assessment, um, right, which a, a case officer will do. And that's what a, what a journalist does. You're assessing the person that you're talking to and um, what's the likelihood that they'll help me and what's what's the best approach to, to try to get them to do so. But interestingly, they don't really teach it this way in journalism school, as far as I understand. Like in Colombia, there's no acronym. There's no MICE, right? It certainly was not when I was there. And I, I remember being a little bit let down on that. There was a lot of focus on on good writing, which of course is important, but I, I had always been a strong writer, so that wasn't really what I needed. What I needed was that. How do I develop a source, cultivate a source? I ended up learning much more of that, of course, when uh, when I went to the agency. I mean, also just the science of asking questions is not really studied. I, I have this textbook that's kind of a law enforcement interrogation book, which I just kind of found interesting to read through. And there was one technique in there that I used once, and I, it, it worked remarkably well, which was sometimes a law enforcement officer will say, no, no, I'm sure you didn't do this, of course. I, I hear what you're saying. But if you had done it, how would you have done it? You know, or, some, you know, or a similar version of that. And according to the book, the human mind just can't, in that moment, make up a new story. It has to just tell you the thing that's closest to the truth. And they spend all of their mental energy scrubbing their own name from it but the actual contours are, are correct you know and the, things like that you know those are interesting didn't oj simpson write write an entire book about that yeah i guess an editor asked him no no i know you didn't do it but if you did <laughs> if you did write a book on how you would have done it but he had more time to kind of fictionalize it i guess um but, but if in the moment of an of a question if you just suddenly surprise someone with that i i, I found in that instance that i used it that it actually worked yeah, and if you want to know if they're telling the truth, you you just keep asking the same question over and over. Yeah, that's a good technique. But over long periods of time, because it's very difficult. As if you're making up stories, it's very difficult to keep them straight. Well, this is great. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on. And um, we hope to see you again in Whale Hunting, the newsletter as well. Uh, and, and then perhaps by the time your next book comes out, we'll have you back on to the podcast too. That would be great. Thanks so much. Whale Hunting is a production of Project Brazen. It's hosted by me, Tom Wright, and Bradley Hope. It's produced by Megan Dean and Claire Urban. At Project Brazen, Mariangel Gonzalez is our project manager. Ryan Ho is the creative director, with additional design from Andrea Claridge. For more from Whale Hunting and to subscribe to our newsletter, 
visit whalehunting.projectbrazen.com. Thank you.